Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, our reading this morning comes to us again from the Gospel according to John. This morning we find ourselves in Bethany, located on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from Jerusalem. Mary and Martha have sent word to Jesus about their brother, Lazarus, who has fallen ill and is near death. Despite the urgency of their plea, Jesus arrives four days after the death of his friend and is deeply moved by the grief that he finds there. Indeed, the account of Jesus' sorrow marks the tenderest description of his human nature in all of the gospel accounts. We are simply told that Jesus wept. Then something extraordinary happens. Jesus calls and life happens. From the darkness of a tomb, light and life emerge. So let us now hear the gospel writer's account of this profound moment. John chapter 11, selected verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after he had said, then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet And said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see And Jesus began to weep. 
And then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. If you have ever driven west on Interstate 70 from Denver into the mountains, you have likely noticed one of the weirdest road signs ever. It's a large green sign located just a few miles east of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And that exit, if you take it, will lead you to a community that dates back somewhere around 1869, a community that is not even designated a town. It's what's called a census-designated place with a population of 123 people. And it's a place without a name, which is why that big green sign on the side of Interstate 70 states plainly and accurately, no name. No name, Colorado. It's actually on the list of the uh, most unusual place names in the world. No name, Colorado. I mean, wow, the marketing team, they really outdid themselves there, didn't they? (laughs) No name, Colorado is right up there with boring Oregon, Uh, rotten egg, Austria, uh, hell, Michigan, why Arizona, and why not North Carolina? <laughs> Ding dong, Texas, and yum yum, Tennessee? I'm going to get an email from somebody from yum yum, I know, but <clears throat> some people, or some places, I think, uh, are actually, by their names, trying to tell us something about those places. Um, maybe in the summer months, hell, Michigan gets uncomfortably warm. That's a clue. Maybe some names tell us everything we need to know about the place. Like the name of the place that's mentioned in the gospel story today. A little village that they called Bethany. The story today begins with these words. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. And maybe like Good Grief, Idaho or P.P. Ohio. Real names of places, by the way. This place called Bethany really does tell us everything we need to know about it. Well, for starters, we know that Bethany was some kind of a house because in the Hebrew, the word Beth means house. A lot of places in the Bible are houses of some kind. There's a place called Bethel, which means house of God. There's Bethsaida, which means house of fish. 
You may have heard of a place called Bethlehem. It means house of bread. And then there's Bethany. Bethany means house of the afflicted. That's a curious name for a place, isn't it? Maybe the name means nothing at all. Maybe it means everything. Uh, Maybe something long ago happened in that place, a a pestilence, a a virus, uh, some kind of affliction or disease. Maybe something is still going on in that place, uh, some kind of condition, what we would say, you know, there's something in the water. Uh, Dis-ease that is just chronic, it won't go away. Maybe Bethany is where all the afflicted people go. We know that in the Gospel of Mark, a leper by the name of Simon lives in Bethany. We don't know much about the place called Bethany except that it's the house of affliction. And it is where Lazarus is. And Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus is dying. And Lazarus is close to death in Bethany, the house of of the afflicted. According to John's gospel, uh, Lazarus has these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and all three of them know Jesus very well. Uh, Jesus and Lazarus, we are told in John's gospel, are close friends. Well, Lazarus is sick, and so the sisters send a message to Jesus who's in Jerusalem, and the message is, Lord, the one you love is ill. The one you love it It gives us this immediate connection of intimacy and love, which makes what happens next in the story really strange. What Jesus does next seems, can you say, a little unchristian. It doesn't even seem to be true. Upon hearing that his friend is sick and his life is hanging in the balance, what does Jesus do? Absolutely nothing. He stays put. Jesus loves Lazarus like a brother. He has stayed in his home many times, according to John. So why doesn't Jesus immediately just drop everything and and make the journey? With his friend's life hanging in the balance, why doesn't Jesus leave immediately to heal him? Well, in the gospel account, it seems to suggest, or at least hint, that that maybe Jesus was standing enough to allow Lazarus to die so that Lazarus could sweep into town and do the thing that gets everybody's attention and everybody understands what kind of power Jesus has. But I don't know about that. Wouldn't most of us question that explanation? Does God really need or cause or, uh, you know, allow us to suffer and die? all the people around us, to allow them to grieve in order to prove God's power? Does God just casually stand on the sidelines with arms crossed, waiting for us to suffer long enough to earn the right to show up and save the day? I think if, if we thought of God as a person, we would call that person a narcissist if they did that. That is not an expression of divine love. And the question is, why does God wait, Jesus wait? An important clue is this, that at this point in the life and ministry of Jesus, there are a lot of people who want Jesus dead. The religious establishment 
has determined that Jesus is a radical teacher, a heretic, a, a threat to the sacred institution. And the Roman authorities, on the other hand, have deemed Jesus a, a radical revolutionary, an insurgent leader, a legitimate threat to the empire. And both groups are conspiring against Jesus. Jesus is a marked man at this point in his journey. Which is why the disciples, they try to keep Jesus in Jerusalem. They say, uh, if you go back to Judea, they're going to kill you. And so Jesus waits two more days. And by the time he finally arrives in Bethany, it, it's four days later. And Lazarus is dead. And Lazarus' body is already anointed and wrapped and already placed in a tomb. And the stone rolled over it. When Jesus hears this news, he is overcome with grief. He weeps. Maybe those two words are the most powerful, poignant words in all the gospel. That Jesus feels what we all feel. Human grief. John says Jesus began to weep. Why does he weep? Is it from grief over the death of his friend? Is it from guilt for having not left sooner, having arrived too late? Some of us know that. Is it that Jesus knows that upon arrival and learning this news, he must now resurrect Lazarus, and uh, resurrections tend to attract a scene, and resurrections tend to draw a crowd, and in that crowd might very well be the very people who want him dead. Which is it? I think the answer is yes. Jesus weeps because his friend is dead, and he weeps because he got there too late, and he weeps because he knows it's the beginning of the end for him. Jesus understands this is a turning point in his life. There's no going back here. If he does what he has to do, if he raises Lazarus from the dead, it will mean the expense of his own life. And here we meet in Scripture this very real human Jesus who like all of us, weeps for a lot of different reasons. For every one of us here, including Jesus, there are three, at least three, universal, inevitable human emotions. Grief, guilt, and fear. And like Jesus, we will all have those moments in our lives when we experience real loss, sadness, grief. And like Jesus, we'll all have those moments when uh, we have guilt over what we've done or what we could have done and didn't do. And like Jesus, I think we will all have moments like him when we feel called to show up and act bravely out of compassion and we have to weigh the consequences and ask ourselves, is it worth the cost? And Jesus brings all three of these human emotions to Bethany, the house of the afflicted, Maybe that's why he weeps. But I think there is one more powerful and compelling reason for why Jesus weeps in the story. And that's because weeping is what happens to us whenever we find ourselves in places that resemble the place called Bethany. Have you ever been to Bethany? I'm not talking about the real biblical place called Bethany. I'm talking about Bethany, the house of affliction. Have you ever been to Bethany where you or 
the people you know and love, or maybe even strangers you'll never meet, or living in a house of affliction, and where you see pain and you see suffering, and it just makes you weep. People living in poverty or struggling with mental illness or addiction, people living in homeless camps downtown in Denver, people who are struggling with loneliness locked away in isolation, people who are struggling with despair and hopelessness or shame, people with illness or chronic, chronic pain. It's just hard to go to Bethany because in Bethany, you encounter people like Lazarus, who if they're not dead, maybe worse, they're still alive, but they're dead to themselves or dead to the world. We've all been to Bethany. In this story, Lazarus is really dead, but Lazarus is a metaphor for anyone who has ever joined the ranks of the living dead. People who are weighed down or locked up, held down or wrapped up, ensnared, enmeshed, entombed by powers that are beyond their control to fix. And they're alive, but they're buried in burial rags, locked away in tombs, trapped in the house of affliction. It's hard to go to Bethany. It's hard to go there with your eyes open to see the afflicted and to know what could become of them. To know the real them underneath all of that and to genuinely long for them to be free. Did you know that in Bangkok, Thailand, there's a small Buddhist temple there. It's called the Temple of the Golden Buddha. It's about 30 feet long and 30 feet wide, and inside you'll find the most impressive statue of the Buddha ever fashioned. A ten and a half feet tall, two and a half ton, solid gold figure, valued at over $200 million. And near the statue of the Golden Buddha is a glass case containing a piece of clay, eight inches thick, about six inches wide. And next to that glass case is a a typewritten description of this extraordinary Buddha. And the story of the Golden Buddha dates back to 1957 when a group of monks needed to move this giant clay Buddha statue from their temple to a new location. Their monastery was being displaced to make room for a new highway through Bangkok and so they brought in this giant crane to lift the massive clay Buddha But the weight of the statue was so great that it immediately began to crack. Concerned about damaging uh, the sacred Buddha, the head monk decided to lower the Buddha back down to the earth to cover it with a large tarp because rain was on the way. Later that evening, the monk checked the statue. He he looked down and underneath the tarp, and there what he saw was a a gleam of golden light shining through one of the cracks. And as he looked closer, he wondered what might be underneath all this clay. He called the other monks. They began to chisel away at the giant clay Buddha. As they knocked off shards of clay, the faint gleam of gold grew larger and brighter. And after hours of chiseling, the monks finally stepped back to behold this amazing sight before them, one solid gold Buddha. Turns out the Buddha had been covered by clay by monks several hundred years earlier. 
their country was about to be invaded by the Burmese army. And so to protect their sacred Buddha and to keep it from being stolen, they wrapped it in mud. And those monks didn't survive the war so that nobody knew about the secret golden Buddha until it was discovered in 1957, several hundred years later. It's just a story. It's a true story, but it's just a story. But maybe it's a story about us, too. Maybe it's a story like the Lazarus story, about how easily we humans are entrapped and entombed by afflictions and powers that are not life-giving, some of which we have chosen, others of which we have no power over. Maybe it's a story about how so many of us, like Lazarus, are just waiting for someone like Jesus, for someone like you, to show up with courage and compassion, to show up with a chisel, to stand outside the tomb and to say, unbind him and let him go. You see, we thought this was a story about the resurrection of Lazarus from a tomb, but it turns out it's really a story about the liberation of Lazarus from the house of affliction. And it's a story about us too, about all the tombs that we live in and the real grief that Jesus feels about it and all the ways that Jesus every day calls out to us and to others, unbind him and let him go. And Jesus weeps because he knows there's real beauty underneath all that stuff. All the things that we wrap ourselves in, busyness, distractions, fear, shame, self-doubt, pride, overconfidence. Jesus longs to see it, what's underneath. Unbind him, he says. Kate Bowler wrote a memoir a few years back. It's called Everything Happens for a Reason. At the time, she was 35 years old, a successful professor at Duke Divinity, uh, loving her life and what she was doing, enjoying being a, a wife and a mother of a young child. In one moment, she was giving a lecture in the classroom, and the next minute, she was in a doctor's office getting a diagnosis of stage four cancer. And she was quickly uh, realizing, as she says in this book, um, life is as fragile as a soap bubble. And she, and the book reflects on her life and how this hyper-awareness stirred up in her. Like she could show up and be fully present in her life now. She was devastated by this thought that she wouldn't live in her son's memory. Um, but remarkably, she never felt more alive than then. And she says the, the terrible gift of, of a terrible illness is that you live moment by moment, and you realize that nothing matters but today. The warmth of her son's crib, the giggling that he makes when she tickles him. She says, when I look closely at my life, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm not just seizing the day. I'm, in my finite life, she says, the mundane stuff sparkles. The things I love, the things I should love. It all becomes clearer. And she says you begin not only to know your own pain, but you begin to see it in other people. You see the beauty of somebody helping another person. You see the beauty of a, of a daughter uh, combing her mother's hair in the cancer clinic. And she says all these feelings just flood over you. 
that life is fragile and it's gorgeous and it's ridiculous. She says she's lived seven years now with her diagnosis and, and she doesn't change a thing the way she lives. All she does is look deeper, see every day the beauty of the life that she's always lived. I think Jesus weeps for that too. Jesus weeps tears of joy whenever someone who was dead, or as good as dead, comes back to life. Because when that happens, it transforms the house of affliction into the house of gladness. Takeaways for today, Jesus weeps like us, and with us, and sometimes for us. Beneath our burial rags is a beauty that only God can see. And hidden in every Bethany is the possibility for gladness. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.